It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome back to the Money Guy Show. I am your host, Brian Preston. If you want to go check out the Money Guy website, you can go to money-guy.com. And there on the Money Guy website, you can go out there and you can pull up our show notes. And then you can even sign up on the left-hand side if you type in your email address. We'll email you those show notes. And what's great about the show notes is that you will get all the links that I talk about in each week's show. And if you're just now joining us, this is the Money Guy Show, where we do restore order to your financial chaos. And what I try to do every week is to go beyond common sense. And we've got a lot to cover today. What we're going to be talking about is, you know, I looked at the calendar. It all sneaks up on us so quickly. It's, um, it's already November, and I cannot believe that we're already into the fourth quarter of the year. And with it being the fourth quarter of the year, I think it's time to go ahead and start doing that year-end planning to make sure that you wind down the year and you're doing everything you need to do. And when you get to the end of the year, this is the best time to start thinking about taxes and to plan for taxes. And I had an email come in. And this is what kind of put me in the mood to talk about this today. I had one of my listeners um, write me and said, I know last year you talked about harvesting losses, plus you, plus you also talked about how we have to be very careful about at the end of the year not getting caught in the distribution tax trap that a lot of mutual funds will, will put you in um, and why you need to be careful about investing. And that, that reminded me that I do need to bring a few of you because I know we've picked up a lot of listeners in the last year. That's a great reminder to kind of bring the wagons back around and review some, some basic things you might need to think about to prepare for the end of the year. And um, after we come back, so that's what I plan on focusing on the first segment is we're going to talk about what you can do here at the end of the year. Second segment, I'm going to talk about um, six ways to save on auto insurance. And there's some good news out there. It seems the trends are that um, auto insurance has actually plateaued out, at least in the temporary period right now, and things have fallen back a little bit. But in addition to just the market going down and the cost of insurance for auto insurance going down, um, I've got some great tips to help you save money on that. And then I'm going to try to close out this segment. I know we'll get to this. I just don't know how much of these other articles we'll get to. I also want to talk about, and this is what I call the low-lying fruit, because um, you know it's just too easy to pick on, but it's still necessary as we're going to talk about what's wrong with variable annuities. Um, and I think it's a good time to talk about that because a lot of us are going to be going on to visit relatives around Thanksgiving, around Christmas. And when you hang around a bunch of relatives, there's no doubt that you're going to find um, a, a young, probably insurance agent that you're related to that's going to try to sell you some products. And I just want to equip you to make the right decisions because maybe you're one of those small percentage of people that actually needs an annuity. And, and we need to get you the right tools to, to figure out if that's you. But for the lion's share of the people, they need to be thinking about saving for retirement and not loading up on that annuity. And before I jump into talking about the tax planning at year end, I did get another email from a listener that I want to address real quick because I've been mentioning in the last two um, Money Guy shows that there's uh, the American Express blue cash card that's out there, and it gives you 5% on grocery. Um, it gives you 5% on drug stores as well as gas purchases and once you spend over $6,500 a year. And then after you also spend over $6,500 a year, you get 1.5% on everything else. And that's really about the best it's going out there on these cash rebate cards if you're really loading up the balances. Um, but I had a listener who wrote me an email who said, wait a minute, Brian, you need to go tell your listeners to go look at the fine print 
because when you go when you go and sign up for this card, it excludes on the five percent percentage the big warehouse clubs. And you know, I'm talking about the big box stores like Target, Walmart, um, Sam's Wholesale, and, and um, BJ's, and those type of things do get excluded from a lot of these. Um, special 5% offers. And that didn't used to be the case. And this is across the board. I have I have the Chase Cash Rewards Plus that's no longer available. And, and I remember about a year and a half ago, I got a disclosure statement in the mail, and they did the exact same thing where they shut down um, the big warehouse stores and the big box stores from getting that 5% there because we were just killing them. I know my household was because we do a lot of shopping at Target and the Super Target, so um, it didn't take much to, to make that 5% turn into some pretty big dollars there. So I just want to give you that disclosure so you were up and up on everything that's going on out there. But let's talk about your year-end tax planning here. And one of the big things, you know, because we are getting to the end of 2007, and it really is the good time to clean out the closet and, and, you know, of, of your financial life and make sure you've done everything right. And the, and the biggest thing is you can alleviate, alleviate the tax pain of capital gains. And, and where that comes from is that i got to tell you, with the way this market's heading, and I mentioned, you know, as Alan Greenspan talked about in his article that he had done an interview for Newsweek, I think this is probably going on a month, month and a half ago, he mentioned there was going to be a second act or an act two from this whole fallout in the in the in the real estate marketplace, when we all realize our net worth statements aren't going up, um, I think he's hinting at that we really could be headed for that slowdown that might lead to the big R word recession. And Ben Bernanke came out last week and said, you know, there is going to be a slowdown, and the markets are reacting very dramatically and dropping quite significantly. And now we've got you know oil, of course, being right there close to $100 a barrel as well. And by the time the show airs, who knows? It might even have broken it at that point. But um, you need to think about with these big trading days that have gone on, that now that we're coming to the end of the year, you might want to harvest some of the losses that you have out there. This strategy is really can be helpful if you go harvest those capital losses. And what I mean by harvesting those capital losses, look at your portfolio. If you bought anything you know, that is, it is at a loss right now, meaning you haven't made any capital appreciation um, on it, you, you you might want to go ahead and sell that fund if you think you can if you can add up those losses enough to where they'll offset some of the capital gains you might have on some other holdings. And this especially is helpful when you think about the higher tax rate you are because you can be in as high as a 35% tax rate, and by doing these losses, you can offset some of those short-term gains that are out there um, and it might even be distributed by the mutual fund companies coming up in the, in the coming weeks. And then even if you don't have gains to offset it, you can still deduct $3,000 a year, and anything above and beyond that, you can carry over indefinitely. Now, the thing you have to be careful of um, with harvesting losses, though, is that a lot of mutual funds, this all came about around 2004, now have holding periods. They don't like you to do, they don't want day traders buying mutual funds. So what they'll do is they, it's hard on a mutual fund manager if you buy in one day with a large sum of money and then you buy out the next day. It, it, it's just hard to manage that portfolio. So what they've done is they put holding periods where, it, it, you know, they're, if you sell the fund within 45, 90 days, 180 days, I've even seen some even go further than that, they will slap you with a 1% to 2% um, deferred charge. So you want to just make sure that before you harvest these losses that you do go out and make sure 
that whatever funds you're going to sell, that you've held long enough that you avoid those deferred charges. They're not sales charges. They're not commissions. These are actually transaction charges charged by the mutual fund companies to try to keep you from doing day trading and jumping in and out. So go look at considering harvesting those losses. And what I like to tell people to do is if you look at and you've got to say a loss in small cap equities because they have been beat up, you can just go buy another small cap equities fund um, to offset. And the reason you can't buy the exact same small cap equities fund is because you have to be careful. There is an IRS rule out there called the wash sell rule, which prohibits you from deducting a loss on a security you've acquired um, in the past. You know, they make you what you have to do is you, you can't acquire a security and take the loss on it if you buy it back within a 30-day period. And if you do buy it back within a 30-day period, you don't lose that deduction permanently. They just make you add it to the cost basis, which is a really a pain in the rear end. You know, because you, now you have to track that. That's not going to be tracked by the mutual fund company. It's not going to be tracked by your advisor or your brokerage company. It's just something you have to keep up with manually, which is making things harder is never the right decision, I don't think. So to avoid wash sale rules, you can go out and buy similar products, just not identical products, um, so go out there and look at if you sell a small cap fund, just go buy another good small cap fund and, and, and spread your, you know, keep your allocation correct. But you can go, you know, take that loss, harvest it to, to offset some of the gains and then go buy something else for another day and, and take advantage of, of the opportunity you've been provided. Also wanted to tell you is that um, you need to think about if you've got a large sum of money, a large a large sum of cash that you've come into and you're thinking about investing it there's some things you need to think about at year end to be careful with if you buy in right now into you know a, a good S&P fund or mid cap fund uh, you know small cap international anything right now that has been doing well for the last few years you're probably buying into a big tax situation because Mutual fund companies wait until the fourth quarter, right around November and December, to start issuing their big capital gain distributions for the year. And what happens is, is that you could buy in right now, and without knowing it, you could end up getting all these capital gains and distributions that will then be immediately taxable when you file your taxes April of next year, and you didn't even enjoy that capital appreciation because when they issue those capital gains, they adjust the price of that, that mutual fund down to reflect the distribution. So you're not even getting the benefit of, of, of riding out and getting that capital appreciation out there. You're just getting the income, paying the tax off of it without the net benefit of it. So I think it's a really raw deal. And, and some strategies you can use to avoid getting caught in that bad deal buying mutual funds right before they issue all their distributions is you might want to look at exchange-traded funds. If you are, you know, are really interested in buying at the end of the year, I always tell people to go look at exchange-traded funds because they don't build up gains like the, like the mutual funds do. Or you could just make sure that you're looking at your um, portfolio and you know, look at retirement accounts. Retirement accounts, it doesn't matter when you buy and sell. So if you've got a large sum of cash in a retirement account, make sure it's allocated properly and diversified. And you don't have to worry about this type of stuff. But taxable money needs to be very careful to make sure you're not buying in at a time that's just all it's going to do is increase your tax bill. That's, that's the worst thing you can do. And that's why when I take on new clients at the end of the year, I'm very, very cautious 
not in a, not only about what's going on in the market, but also about what's going on at the mutual fund companies that I like to use and to make sure that I'm not buying my clients in right before they issue the, the, those incomes. I always try to go, you can call the mutual fund companies. They'll give you a clue of what day they're going to distribute. They'll even give you an indication of how much of a distribution they're going to have for the year. And um, you can base that information and make you and let you figure out if you want to wait until you know after they've actually distributed or that dividend declared date that they have um, for those gains and the dividends that they're going to pay out. So so think about that and be careful. Um, you also can think about a, a year in time is that a, a great way that you can rebalance your portfolio is that since you know if you've got big gains in some of these things and maybe you can't do the harvesting of losses, maybe you can't sell out to avoid the capital gains and distributions, you can change your settings on your account to where maybe capital gains at the end of the year, if you've gotten way too heavy, say international has done incredibly well for you, and now instead of being you know, 15% of your portfolio, it's now 19% of your portfolio or 20% of your portfolio, you can have it where the capital gains and dividends right here at the end of the year will just pay to cash. And when they pay to cash, you can then go diversify that money elsewhere, and that way it allows you not to take that taxable gain by selling you know, it to reallocate. You can just let the income come in and reallocate that way. Um, but do, you do need to go out there and look at your reallocation at the end of the year. It's a good time to do that. The other thing I like to remind people talking about year-end planning is this is always a great time to go look in your closet and figure out if you've got any deductions, meaning clothes or anything that you can donate to the Salvation Army or your favorite charity of choice. This is, you know, this is the time. It's one of the few things, it's one of the few donations, I mean, deductions, I should say, on your individual income tax return that is not impacted by alternative minimum tax. Charitable deductions do not get impacted like like your home mortgage interest deduction or your property taxes. Those type of things get wiped off pretty easily if you make a decent sum of money because of alternative minimum tax. Charitable contributions don't get stuck by that. So this is a great time to go make a good cause, you know, go help a good cause out by making, well, cleaning out your closet. Go take those to your favorite charity and take that tax deduction at the end of the year, and I think you'll be very pleased with it when you go and um, do your tax return in April. So that's something you really ought to take into account. Now, when we come back from um, this commercial break, we're going to be talking about ways you can save on your auto insurance. And I think this is important. Unless you're one of my listeners who's listening up and in, in right there in Manhattan of New York where you don't even own a car, then most of us own cars. And this is the, the type of thing, information you need um, that can help you make, make the right decision. So stay with me and come back in just a few minutes and tune in. I'm going to help you out to uh, save on some auto insurance. But i also love for you to go check out our website. Once again, that's money-guy.com. And you can go look at our show notes and get all these links that I'm about to talk about. Because this article, um, well, I'll, I'll get into that. This is Brian, your host for The Money Guy. i got a break coming on. We'll be right back after this. Brian, The Money Guy, Preston here. If you enjoy the information that I share on The Money Guy Show, then you'll love my print newsletter, The Wealth Report. The Wealth Report is the quarterly newsletter that I send my wealth management clients, and I'm making it available to you for the affordable price of $29 a year. 
you can sign up at the Money Guy website. That's money-guy.com. This quarter's Wealth Report covers putting the summer stock sell-off in perspective. Ranks of millionaires skyrocketing across the globe. The most common mistakes that retirees make and how you can avoid them. What else should be in your will and choosing an estate planning attorney. All this great information is packed into the fourth quarter Wealth Report. So what do you have to lose? You probably spend more than $29 on lunch this week. So take me up on this incredible offer and sign up today at the Money Guy website. Once again, that's money-guy.com. Money-guy.com. Sign up now. Money-guy.com. And we're back for our second segment. This is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We're here to restore order to your financial chaos and go beyond common sense. Now, before the break, we were talking about year-end tax planning, but now we're going to jump in six ways to save on auto insurance. And this impacts many of us because most people I know are a two-car family. I mean, you, you face it, you got to... Both spouses usually have cars, and one of the biggest things, especially for my young listeners, is the cost of auto insurance. So we're going to be talking about today ways that you can save on it, and this isn't your boring old normal stuff. I mean, sure, we talk about raising deductibles. We've all heard that before, but we also get into some of the great discounts that are out there. So let's let's go in with this and talk about it. First, let's go over some good news. There is some good news in the fact that insurance premium hikes have hit the brakes, Um, And and this information, by the way, is coming from Smart Money, and I do have this linked out there on our website. That's money-guy.com. But the Insurance Information Institute, that's I-cubed. Yeah, cubed. Insurance Information Institute, I-I-I. I I like I-cubed. Projects a 0.5% decrease for insurance premiums for 2007, bringing, bringing the average annual cost down to $847 a year. This marks the first decline since 1999. So that's, that's eight years. That's pretty incredible. So this is the, in, a, in a world where gas is hitting a, a $100 a barrel, gold's at an all-time high, and the dollar is going down in value, which means it makes it more expensive to go buy goods elsewhere globally. This is the first thing I've heard of in a long time that's going down in price. So that's actually a good thing. Um, but here's six ways to save. Don't you know? You just can't take for granted what's going on out there in the insurance world that it's going to drop enough to save you money. You've got to be proactive with insurance. Insurance companies will take you for granted if you don't pay attention to them. So let's talk about that. The first step, and that leads right into step one, which is you need to shop around. And, and, and think about this: when you're looking for a new policy, you need to really get three quotes. And if you really want to save, go beyond that. I mean, you can go much further than just three quotes. But the reason you want to do three quotes is because you, you need to think about this. First, let me tell you, if you go shop around, here's what the research is showing. According to a 2004 survey that w- it was done by Progressive, it says of more than 100,000 su- consumers across the country conducting this part of this survey by con- Progressive Insurance, Rates for comparable coverage can vary by more than $500 for six months. That's what I said $500 for six months. That's $1,000 a year. That's a lot of money. So the reason you need to get three quotes is because insurance, just to bring you up to speed, it comes from three camps, really. It, it, it's, 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 the insurance world is divided into these three camps, and they are. Let me give you the, the, the three camps that are out there. There's the direct riders like GEICO and... Um, I guess this is Amica. I've heard, I've seen it on Consumer Reports and some other things. It's A M I C A, and I've seen some of their 
their commercials on TV recently. And these guys all use in-house employees to sell their insurance directly to consumers, meaning there's no middleman. They're selling it directly to you through the web or through a phone-based system. The other insurance agents like um, that are with State Farm, Allstate, use what's known as captive or exclusive agents to sell their products. I mean, these are independent agents who work predominantly on commission and sell only the products of that one company. And then the third group, that final tier, are the independent agents who sell insurance for various different companies. They're kind of like insurance brokers. And and these folks also earn commission, um, but they are all independently and pretty much self-employed, you know, working for themselves. And there's even a link out there if you want to go find a good independent agent. Um, on the website for this, if you go to this link, it's, it's in, Independent Insurance Agents of, uh, and Brokers of America. So you can go look that out. But if you have it, assuming you have a good, decent driving record, you might want to go look at the, just buying insurance directly from one of these direct sources. You know, that's like the progressives. Even though progressive has actually changed recently, they now do allow agents to sell their product. When they first came to market, Progressive was one of those pretty much a direct, you know, you you bought it directly through the Internet and and shopped it out. But they have added some product lines now where you can um, buy it through agents. And I'll tell you, the other one, like, the, you know, I mentioned Allstate is one of those captive insurers that uses, um, you know, agents that only sell Allstate. I'll tell you, my, my I use an insurance broker, and I am buying a product that is actually owned by Allstate. Even though I'm buying from a broker, Allstate sells products through, um, it's, it's a it's, it's an insurance company called Encompass, but Encompass is actually a subsidiary of Allstate. So it's kind of unique. They, they, they all play the game because they, they want to allow as much access to the consumer to their products. So it's not uncommon that you can find different ways to get. But if you have a good driving record, you might want to buy from the direct agents, you know, because they have no middlemen. So it saves you that 15% commission that most insurance agents are out there making. But there is a problem with doing this strategy is that these type of insurance companies are picky. So if you've had any fender benders or, or you've gotten several speeding tickets or run into the law recently, you're probably not going to be able to jump right to one of the direct sellers. You're going to have to go to the state farms or the all states because they hold about 18%. Well, state farm has 18% of the market share of the insurance industry, and all state has about 11%. And then after you get a quote from those agents, go ahead and run it up the tree with the independent agent and see what comes out of that because that could tell you, you know, after you've run it through those three sources, you're going to know really how good your insurance price is. So that's secret number one is go out there and shop it around. But I do want to give you one note of caution. Be careful. There's nothing wrong with being a tightwad and going out there and shopping things, but do not let yourself in the search for the best bargain of the century you know, put you into substandard companies. I don't, you know, you've got to be very careful about who you sign up to because your insurance coverage is only as good as the company that's issuing the policy. Um, Because you don't want to have this policy that you've been buying for super cheap rates for all these years, and then you finally get an accident, need to go make a claim. All of a sudden, you find out these guys aren't financially able, really. They they give you a hard time because they don't like to come off the, the money because they really aren't financially able to. So be very careful. A good recommendation is to make sure you go with a company that has a good credit rating. With a rating service such as Standard & Poor's or Moody's, you might also want to check with the State Department of Insurance You know, within each of your states. Here in Georgia, you can check it out. But I know we have listeners all over the country. Um, 
that make sure they, they don't have a high number of consumer complaints. And you can go out there and check out. There's a link on this website that I'm also going to link to Smart Money from um, the Money Guy website that you can go find this link out there. Number two, we talked about number one was shop around. That's the first tip. But number two, get all available discounts. So I'm going to go through every one of these discounts because I think, and I'm going to go through them quick, but I think it's that important. You, first of all, and this is, the, this is pretty easy, and this is like why well, I have all my insurance with one company, you can get combination discounts. You can often knock off 10 to 20% from your premiums if you insure both your home and your car with the same company. So go check that out. You also, and you, plus you also get discounts just for having multiple cars with the same company. Um, you can also look at defensive driving classes. I know when I was a young guy, because if you're a young single guy, teenager, or in college, insurance will kill you. I don't care if you can afford that expensive, nice, race, sporty car. Um, you probably can't afford the insurance. That happens to quite a number of people because they just know that um, young guys are prone to cause um, to get themselves in some trouble. And it always drove me crazy, but I was able to cut my premiums down. I remember when I was younger, I took a defensive driving class, and it was kind of interesting. Um, it's one of those things where you take that class, and they, they show you those movies where there's blood on the highway or, or whatever, and then you actually get in the car with a with a trainer, and they kind of show you some you know, ways to make sure that you protect yourself. Uh, by doing a defensive driving class, you can um, earn a 10% discount on your premium. So that's something you should consider. If you have kids or you're a good student, good students get a discount. Students with GPAs of 3.0 or higher can be eligible for discounts. It take off as much as 25% a year from your premium. In some cases, young male drivers may benefit even more from this since their premiums are even higher. So you might really want to go look and make sure you're keeping those grades up. You find out in insurance that they reward you for being a low-risk lifestyle. There's a reason that CPAs have the best insurance rates in the industry is because, let's face it, CPAs, we're all boring. All your public accountants, we're kind of boring people. You don't see many of us jumping out of airplanes to get our kicks. We, um, most of us are, are, you know, are, are follow the rules. We're very much rule followers, and that's why we have some of the best insurance rates. And you see that in some of these discounts I'm talking about. Defensive driving, that's education. Good students. If you're a good student, you're probably using that noggin a good bit, so they know if you're using your brain, you're probably not going to make some stupid decisions out there. It doesn't keep you. Being on the school board, I recognize that even smart kids – Make some stupid decisions from time to time, but the probability is that you'll make a good decision. Um, retirement discounts. If you have it retired, especially if you retired at a re- relatively young age, make sure you tell your insurance company because you, you're, you're more than likely driving less if you're retired, and there are often some discounts that you can get from that. There's also association and group discounts. Listen to some of these groups. I was shocked to hear this. I need to call my agent and check up on some of this stuff. I talked to my agent today. I didn't even think about bringing this up. Discounts may be available for affiliations with all sorts of associations. Your college could get you a discount. I, I don't know if I believe that, but that's what this article says. I'll have to call my agent and see if being a bulldog allows me to get a discount. I, he's probably going to laugh at me. But you can also get a military or group discount, a professional organization. Even if you're a member of Mensa, you know, that's the genius society, you can get a discount at some um, insurance companies. And if you work for a large employer, that could lead to a discount as well. And if, you're, if you have college kids or you're a college kid who lives far away, so if you, if you have kids who live at least 100 miles away from your car, you could save up to 40% on your premium because the insurance companies know if they live 100, 100 miles or further away, probably not going to wreck your car so they can give you a discount of 40%. Safety discounts. This varies by state. 
but it still can reward you for having a good, you know, certain safety features on your car, such as anti-lock brakes, airbags, automatic seatbelts, anti-theft devices are eligible for discounts as well. And, and I'll tell you, I'll add on to that, is that I know whenever I talk to my insurance agents, whenever I've shopped it, they always want to know if the car is parked indoors, like in a garage. I think that that, that also helps out with the, with the premium. Make sure you're telling them every and every little thing that you can think about. Loyalty discounts. Stick with the same company for more than one year, and you can earn a break of 10% or more on your premiums. The third thing, because I was talking about all the different discounts that are out there, so make sure you get those discounts, is you can increase your deductible. Now, I know we've all heard this one, but I think it's important because I've actually got some numbers to talk to you about. If you increasing your deductible can cut your premium dramatically, and sh, and since insurance is meant, and I'm going I'm going to paraphrase this instead of reading this part of it, I you know we're scared to death of, to use insurance, aren't we all scared to death to actually call our insurance company if we actually have something go wrong? Since that's the case, you're not going to call them on the little things. You're only going to call them if you have something really major happen. Why not go ahead and push up that deductible? Because if you raise your deductible on your collision. And, and, and those type of things from two hundred to five hundred dollars, you could reduce your premium by fifteen to thirty percent. And if you raise your deductible to a thousand dollars, it could save you forty percent or more on your annual premium if you just take down, cut off that, um, you know, cut down that 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 collision and comprehensive coverage a little bit on you know raising those deductibles. And, you, and number four, besides raising your deductible is you could drop some coverage. If you own an older car, one that's worth less than 10 times the amount you'd pay for coverage. So according to that, if they say the average insurance is like $876 a year, uh, the way I'm reading that is that if you have a car that's worth you know, $8,000 or less, you, I don't know if I believe that, but I think if you do own a car that's worth less than five, six thousand, you might want to consider it. You might want to consider dropping collision and comprehensive coverage altogether. Um, collision and comprehensive coverage can account for 40% or more of the cost of your premium and covers only the car's replacement value. If any payment you receive wouldn't substantially exceed your premiums minus the deductible, it's probably not worth getting that type of insurance coverage. So make sure you're not paying for something that you're really not going to get any benefit benefit out of if you lost the car anyway. Number five, clean up your credit report. Like I said, insurance companies like boring people who are following all the rules. Number five is clean up your credit. Like it or not, your credit report can affect whether a company is willing to insure you. At what rate? Somebody who is extremely poor and their payment habits could pay 30 to 40% more than somebody without those type of payment problems. So it is very important. And then the final tip that I'm going to give you on saving money on your insurance is to get the right car. And I'll give you an example. My mother just bought a new car, and um, she was looking at the, the, the Acura Sport Utility, and then she was looking at a, a Mercedes-Benz Sport Utility. Retirement's been good for my mother, I guess. Um, I'll take credit. I think it's actually my good money management that has made retirement good for mother. But um, she she has um, bought the new Acura because when we were comparing, I was pushing the Acura anyway for reliability. Don't get mad if you're a Mercedes person, but... Um, when she called the insurance company, there was a significant difference between the insurance on the Mercedes SUV versus the Acura SUV. So I think you've got to go pick the right car 
because if you're in the market for a new car, keep in mind that those with the highest theft rates and those with the highest repair costs will definitely cost more to insure because it's going to cost more for that insurance company to fix it as well. So if you're debating between two models, call that insurance company and make sure. So when we come back from um, the commercial break, I'm going to talk about variable annuities. So hang in there with me. I'm the host for The Money Guy Show, Brian Preston. We'll be right back after this. Brian Preston, one half of Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I'm now a fee-only planner. I didn't like the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. And we're back for the final segment of the Money Guys show. Appreciate y'all joining me again today as we wrap up this final segment. I want to talk to you, this is what I call low-lying fruit, because you can always, if you're looking for a topic to talk about that will benefit the most people, we can always come back and talk about products that are not appropriate for the masses, but yet somehow defy gravity, that's what I call it, defy gravity, and um, still somehow have huge market share out there, and it's one of those things that if I can educate you, I think a lot of people, when they listen to this type of stuff, pop their head, they go, boop. Oh, my God, what was I thinking when I bought that? Of course he was right. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about variable annuities and what's wrong with variable annuities. And this is another article that I've gotten from Smart Money. And I, and I, I typically try to mix it up, not take both show topics from the same website. But uh, I found some good stuff on the same website. I didn't want to penalize them just for having good information out there. So we're pulling both topics off of Smart Money this week. And variable annuities... They're sold more aggressively, and I thought this was hilarious. This is how this article started. I'm going to just read this because I think it's that funny. It says, Variable annuities are sold more aggressively than fake Gucci handbags on the streets of New York City. Thanks in part to commissions of 5% or more, sales of variable annuities have soared over the past decade. And isn't that the truth? I mean, if you know anybody in, in, in the insurance industry that sells this type of product, if you know them, they've probably tried to sell you a product, and there's all kind of variations of different type of annuities. Um, there's these variable, traditional variable annuities. You also see it's a product I've seen coming around quite frequently recently, and I've actually had some dealing with some prospects as well as clients, these equity indexed annuities. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I think these things are dreadful because they, what they do is they, they promise, and this is a little, this is kind of a sidebar comment, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there. What I don't like about equity indexed annuities is what they do is they promise that they're always going to have a positive return. They guarantee a minimum rate of return. Um, but then what they do is they rip the heart out of your returns because they'll cap them. A lot of times they cap them at 10, 11, 12%. So if you have a year when, you know, we go through, say, say we are headed for a recession. I don't know if we truly are, but it's starting to look a little dangerous out there. But say we go through a recession for two years. After you go through a bad market, there's usually a pop period. When you get when the market recovers, it realizes that inventories are low, demand has started to pick back up, all of a sudden everybody has to ramp up rather quickly. So it's not uncommon that in the years of recovery, 
you might make 20% or 22%. So in those years, when you have these equity index type of annuities, they take away that additional 8% rate of return because you're capped. You can't, you can't, once you, if you break through their cat, their ceiling, they keep that extra profit. And let's talk about that guarantee of 5% or whatever, 4%, whatever the guarantee is in the, each particular um, contract. If you go look at the historical norms of the, of the stock market, I mean, it averages 12% from, you know, if you go back to the 40s and 50s till now, even through bad times. It's not hard to get into positive territory if you can do the right thing and think about things and being a long-term investor, meaning don't put your money out into the stock market or the bond market, for that matter, unless you can walk away from it for five to seven years. But if you can walk away from it for five to seven years, like for retirement, you've got, you're going to be okay. I mean, I can't guarantee it, but if you go by historical norms, you're going to be okay. It's a pretty easy bet for the insurance companies to do that. And these things are super, super expensive and they have all the problems I'm about to talk about. So let's talk about um, these variable annuities because that was kind of a sidebar about equity index annuities, which are, you know, another form of variable annuities. But the popularity of variable annuities is no indicator of really the practicality. The truth is, and I've stated this already in the first segment, annuities only make sense for a tiny fraction of the population. And here's the basics on annuities. The first, let's go over a primer. A variable annuity is basically a tax-deferred investment vehicle that comes with an insurance contract, usually designed to protect you from loss in capital. You know, see, that's how the equity index is just a, another way. Index funds have gotten popular, so guess what? The insurance industry has realized, hey, we'll make a variable annuity. It's tied to an index fund. It'll be great, but yet we'll take out all the good things about index funds to, and give you this... promise of protection from a capital loss. Thanks to the insurance wrapper, earnings inside the annuity grow tax-deferred, and the account isn't subject to annual contribution limits like those of other tax-favored vehicles like IRAs and 401ks. Typically, you can choose from a menu of mutual funds, which in the variable annuity world are known as sub-accounts. So it's not, let me give you another little side story, is that you might have a variable annuity that offers Vanguard funds. They're not, they are Vanguard funds in the fact that they're buying the same holdings as Vanguard, but they're what's known as a sub-account. They have a different fee structure than what makes Vanguard great. So be very careful. Just because your variable annuity offers a Vanguard product doesn't mean it has the same fee structure as if you bought directly from Vanguard, and that does directly impact your performance. So pay attention to that. Getting back to what this says. Withdrawals made after age 59 and a half are taxed as income. Earlier withdrawals are subject to tax and a 10% penalty. So it's just like a retirement account. If you think about an IRA or 401k, you pull that stuff out before 59 and a half, the government penalizes you because they're giving you the benefit of tax-deferred growth. So if you pull it out early, they're going to give you a 10% penalty. Variable annuities can be immediate or deferred. And what I mean by that is with a deferred annuity, the account grows until you decide it's time to make withdrawals. And when that time comes which is usually after you've reached 59 and a half or you've, you've met some of the early withdrawal you know, exceptions that are out there, you can either annuitize your payments, which will provide regular payments over a set amount of time, or you can withdraw money as you see fit. Now let's talk about the things that drive me crazy about annuities. And this is important because, like I said, we are getting close to the holidays, and I know we're going to have relatives that approach us that are going to come out, or friends. I mean, that's why... That's one of the reasons I'm a fee-only guy. I never wanted to have that feeling that whenever I went to go over to a friend's house, they were worried I was going to push some type of product on them. So, um, but this is what I don't like about these type of products is the fees, fees, 
And let's say it again, more fees. Variable annuities are notorious for the fees that they charge. Indeed, the annual average expense on variable annuity subaccounts currently stands at, now check this out, the average annual fee for these subaccounts is 2.37% of assets, according to Morningstar. This isn't my number. This is from Morningstar. This figure includes fund expenses plus insurance expenses. The average open-ended mutual fund, that's your typical mutual fund, excluding municipal, uh, pardon me, excluding municipal mutual funds, on the other hand, charge just 1.33%. So do you see that? So we've got a product that charges 1.33 on average, and that's not the Vanguard, by the way. Vanguard, you can get, or, or Fidelity, you can get a Fidelity Spartan Index 500 fund that charges 0.10%. Compare that to these that are charging 1.33 or 2.37%, and you can see that the variable annuity is 23, close to 24 times more expensive, or 13 times more expensive or cheaper than the, the standard mutual fund. Or, But I, I just think 2.37% is a lot of money. Um, unfortunately, and this annually, by the way, they're charging that 2.37% annually. And meanwhile, you could have an index fund that's charging 0.10%. So you're paying 24 times what you pay with an index fund every year with this thing. Unfortunately, variable annuity fees don't stop there. Many variable annuities also, so in addition, did you hear that? In addition to 2.37%, we've got additional fees that we're adding on here. Many variable annuities also have loads on their subaccounts. Surrender charges for selling within them. Yeah, that's right. They lock you up for five to seven years. And an annual contract charge of about $37 on average. So fees upon fees upon fees. So what about death benefit? Because that's sometimes touted as a benefit too. The death benefit basically guarantees that your account will hold a certain value should you die before the annuity, uh, annuity payments begin. With basic accounts, this typically means that your beneficiary will at least receive the total amount invested, even if the account has lost money. Remember, markets don't lose money very often, I mean, in the long term. So that's not a hard bet for the insurance companies to bet and make, even if the account has lost money. For an added fee, this figure can periodically be stepped up or earn a small amount of interest. If you opt not to annuitize, then the death benefit typically expires at a certain age, often around 75 years of age. Well, given the fact that stocks, and this is what the article puts, so this ties right into what I was talking about. Given the fact that stocks have returned an average of 12.1% annually, assuming dividends are reinvested from 1926 to 2006, that's right, that's 80 years, people, according to the Center for Research and Security Prices, over the long haul, you need this insurance about as much as a duck needs a paddle to swim. That's their words. You need this insurance about as much as a duck needs a paddle to swim. Okay, so investors who bought annuities and then died within the next two months probably did get their money's worth. We'll give you those the exception. Those are people who got their money. But consider this. The death benefit was triggered in only 1% of all policies from 2002 to 2004, according to LIMRA. That's L-I-M-R-A International, which is an insurance industry research group. The price of this questionable feature, an annual 1.19% according to Morningstar. So you're going to pay that mortality expense at 1.19% every year just so you can possibly be that 1 in 100 that, that, that benefits. That's just crazy. 
Surrender fees. This is the other thing you got to think about. Surrender fees. Another problem with most variable annuities is that your money is often locked up for several years, typically five. Trying to withdraw funds during this time will result in huge fines. These fees typically decrease as the years tick by. For example, you might be charged 7% surrender fee for withdrawal during your first year of ownership. After seven years, however, that could be just 1%. The average fee is a steep 7.2% according to Morningstar. So you, you buy into this fund. It charges you well into the, the, the 2% a year just for maintenance and management. And then you decide you, you're tired of getting ripped off and you want to get your money back. You can't do it because they're going to ding you on the way out too. This is... You can't vote with your feet, and that's the problem. I always like flexibility with my products. That's why even when I sign up new clients, I just had a prospect meeting today. When I sign up a new client, the contract's not binding because I want you to be able to vote with your feet. If I'm not earning my keep, get the heck out. I'm not, if I'm not earning my keep, I don't want to be there. You know, and I think you ought to be able to do that too. For anybody to put a, in a product that you're locked in for seven years, I, I think it's just not right. There's also an early withdrawal penalty, as I've already talked about, because these things are essentially retirement accounts and tax-favored. If you withdraw the money before 59 and a half, you will be hit with a 10% penalty. So let's talk about the taxes, because that's what these things used to be touted as a great tax benefit. Gains in favorable annuities are taxed at ordinary income tax rates rates, which can be as high as 35%. If you're making some bucks, you're paying 35% tax rate federally, not even counting the state taxes if you live in a state that has state taxes. For most investors, that's a whole lot higher than the maximum 15% that they're paying now on long-term mutual fund gains and dividend income. And that, and that tax difference can easily eat up the difference of the annuity's tax-free compounding. This article mentions that really to equalize that difference in tax rates, you've got to be in this fund for 15 to 20 years to even come and equalize that separation of the 15% long-term capital gains and dividends rate versus the, the high ordinary income tax rate that you could be paying. And these things are the world's lousiest estate planning vehicles. There is no getting around the income tax due on annuities. And I said income tax, not estate tax. I'm talking about income tax. These things are lousy if you die with it in your estate because if you die with money remaining in your annuity, your beneficiary will inherit all the taxes that you have deferred. Compare that to a mutual fund whose basis is stepped up at death. So you buy, you know, you put $10,000 into a mutual fund and say it's worth 50 on the day you die. It just steps up to fifty grand. You know, your your beneficiaries sell it. You know, after they get it after you pass away, and, and it's worth fifty grand when they sell it. They pay no income tax. You you give a, a beneficiary a fifty grand annuity that somebody originally invested ten grand in. They're going to, have to pay forty grand of ordinary income tax rates. So these things are terrible. Um, you know, uh, from a, an income tax planning standpoint, if you're trying to pass something down to your to your family. Now, if you're stuck with one of these, because I know a lot of you, like I said, are having that V8 moment where you're going, oh, how could I have been so crazy to buy this thing? Then you can think about switching to a lower fee variable annuity. There are there are available for, from mutual fund companies to buy low fund and low fee um, variable annuities out there. And Vanguard even offers them. And they take those average fees of 2.37% down to an average fee of about 0.57%. And that includes that mortality and expense and the risk charges. T. Rowe Price um, has a, a, an annuity program that has average mutual fund expenses ranges from 0.35 to one. 0.05%, plus they have an additional 0.55 mortality expense. So it's a little bit 
more expensive than Vanguard, but still a lot cheaper than the average variable annuity. Investors who also have already um, run a, the, the mill on the high price annuity should consider a tax-free transfer, and that's known as uh, a 1035 exchange. I'll, I'll say that number again, 1035 exchange um, to, to a better quality fund. We've run out of time. I'll see you guys. i got to quickly jump off here. Um, I'll see you guys next week. I hope you got something out of this. I'll talk to you soon. I'm your host, Brian. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.